Well, hello and welcome to episode number 331 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and in this week's show there's more bad news for Rolls-Royce as they alert operators to Trent engine blades cracking. Everyone's favourite low-cost carrier smashes their seven-star rating and loud bangs force a Jet 2 plane to return to Ma- uh, Manchester. Uh, in the military, a helicopter gets shot at while training in the US state of Virginia and the Air Force is 3D printing engine components. And in this week's Plain Truth segment, we learn all about the black box and Tanya Wyman tells us all about the aviation in her life. So... Uh, Joining me this uh, week on the uh, show, uh, and he can't actually speak, but uh, I'll speak for him, is Matt Smith, because well, unfortunately Matt has got, uh, well, he's got some kind of throat infection sort of horsey throat kind of thing. So, hello, Matt, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. How are you, Carlos? Yeah, I'm very well, Matt, thank you. Yeah, yeah, nice to have you on the show, as always. All right, there's no need to be like that. <laughs> Oh, poor Matt. Honestly, sorry to hear you're um, you're unwell. Yeah, give us a wave anyway, Matt. Just give, come on, look, for the the public, look, there he is, look. He's still alive, just. But, uh, so Matt is going to, Matt's going to, Matt is going to be a pretty much 95.5% button-pushing slider-moving person this evening on the show. But uh, he will be obviously doing everything in the correct order because he's, Amazing like that. But joining me this week, he's back from his wine-drinking session across Europe. It is, of course, the legend that is Sir Neville Bounds. Oh, if only it was. Sadly not, no. Uh, But, uh, yeah, very busy week at work last week, so I wasn't able to join you, I'm uh, sorry to say. But uh, back with full gusto this week and uh, plenty to talk about on the show, haven't we, Carlos? We have, indeed, Nev. It's to good it. to have you back, Nev. Thank you. Good to have you back. Appreciate yeah, it. thanks. I take it things have been uh, as warm as they have been here. In oh East yes, uh, driving the orange machine this week. Uh, Thirty-seven degrees centigrade <gasps> at some stage earlier on. Uh, so the air conditioning was doing its nut in the car. But uh, yeah, we've had some very odd weather, haven't we? Right across from East mm. Anglia to where I live, uh, to the northwest of London. So very unstable weather and. Uh, Lots of uh, weather avoidance going on uh, aircraft, I would imagine, too. So we better ask our um, American host, co-host of the show, if we've beaten him for our temperatures of weather for this week. So without further ado, we're going to introduce someone who's been missing for a little while, but he's back. He's back, and we're pleased to have him back on the show. It is, of course, the absolute legend, the guy who puts the first class into flying is, of course, Armando. Oh, shucks. That's one of the nicest ones. Hey, guys. It is uh, great to be back on the show. As Nev and I were talking about in the pre-show, contractually, we're only allowed to be on the same show twice or three times a year, yeah. something like that. But uh, no, here I am sitting on reserve in Atlanta. We actually just got here. Uh, my lovely wife is sitting right next to me listening in. That's my third hand. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just sort of hanging out in Atlanta. And I think tonight we're going to go to a nice dinner at a Av Geek place, look it up, called the Elevation Chop House. It uh, sits on one of the local airports around here. So have we beaten you for, uh, for weather this weekend, Armando? I think you have. It's Yay! actually been uh, stormy, which has kept the temperatures down in uh, Charlotte and here in Atlanta. Actually, we were 
uh, going out for a walk just before we came into the hotel, and it's actually surprisingly nice out there. Mm. So you guys have us beat. Good. At least we've got one up this week for at least. I'll be back to minus 50 next week, no doubt. But, <laughs> you got to uh, win at something. Oh, I know. And uh, this week, we've got some news, though, before we uh, kick things off. Obviously, uh, those of you who watch this show will know that me and uh, Nev were supposed to be off to a certain air show in September this year. But, Nev, what's going on? Yes, unfortunately, uh, yesterday, as we suspected might happen, uh, Malta was placed on the list of quarantine um, countries. So that means uh, that were we to go, uh, we would have to come back and quarantine for two weeks but of course because it's the foreign and commonwealth office advice saying that you should only go for essential travel your insurance would not be valid either and the malta air show has been cancelled anyway so that's all gone a bit wrong i have to say and we were very much looking forward to a few days out there uh, doing interviews air show stuff the normal stuff we would do but unfortunately due to circumstances beyond our control we are mm. not able to do that so um yeah what a shame but, it is a big uh, shame they have said though that they are planning on a 2021 show uh, at the end of december uh, end of september next year so fingers crossed uh, we may well get out for that one so let, let's see how we go so on the subject of air shows, uh, if you are a big subscriber on YouTube and you follow aviation channels, Stu over at Air Show World on YouTube has been broadcasting live from various locations around uh, the, U- the UK this week, including RAF Mildenhall. Uh, he's just started in the last two weeks to do live streams. So check out his channel. Uh, on Thursday, he had a wonderful shot uh, live of the U2 taking off from RF Mildenhall. And uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. That's uh, Air Show World. Uh, so it's a great little one to sub- subscribe to on uh, YouTube. And uh, we have actually, we've got uh, an update as well, haven't we, Nev? Uh, yes, we have indeed. Uh, and, um, oh, actually, <laughs> What a time for my screen to freeze just at the critical point there, which is not uh, uh, not very helpful. But um, uh, so, oh yes, here we go. Um, yes, um, this is about the uh, Kerala. Yes, the India Express one three four four flight, um, and a little bit from what we know uh, comes from the Aviation Herald. Uh, and uh, the uh, India's aviation minister reports that both, both black boxes have now been recovered. So on August the 8th, the airline reported both pilots and 15 passengers died in the accident. All cabin crew are safe, however. One other passenger died as a result of injuries sustained. One passenger walked away from the wreckage, nearly uninjured, but with a bumped head and uh, bleeding lips. He drove home by himself. Kerala's uh, chief minister's office reported one victim of the accident had been tested positive for coronavirus. So far, uh, all victims, including the deceased, will be tested for the disease. Uh, All members of the rescue team uh, would need to be sent into quarantine. The minister added also that the aircraft had still sufficient fuel on board to divert to their alternate aerodrome and land there with more than the minimum fuel required. So that's an ongoing uh, investigation there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, ongoing. It's um, obviously it's going to be a big investigation into this, and I'm sure that will be um, published at some point somewhere on the various news feeds. But um, 
Uh, on other news as well, for those of you who are big simmers, um, such as I will be this weekend, so I have a weekend of nothing planned, so I'm going to be probably sitting here playing X-Plane 11 most of this weekend. Uh, Microsoft Flight Sim is uh, being released on the 18th of August, which is uh, four days away, isn't it? Because today's the 14th. Yeah, so that's next Tuesday. Uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator will be released. And uh, obviously, you'll need a fairly hefty graphics card to run the game, but um, I'm sure that uh, it will be a one worth getting. You, I've, I've seen some of the stuff on YouTube. It is unbelievable, isn't it? Mm. The, the realism, the uh, scenery layers, absolutely incredible. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing this. Is that one you're going to uh, get, Armando? Because obviously you've, you've obviously had the sim kind of uh, stuff set up in your home and stuff when you were here in the UK. Is, uh, is Microsoft Flight Sim going to be for you? Yeah, absolutely. Like Nev is saying, it's uh, just an amazing leap in flight simulation. So I think I'm going to have to get it, if nothing else, just to try it. And You know, I haven't, I haven't had as much time to get on the sim, but when it comes down to doing some of those procedures... One of the things that I really liked with X-Plane was the virtual reality and being able to sort of sit in the cockpit of an airplane and sort of, and virtually flip switches and all that stuff. But uh, I'm curious, like everybody else, to see what, uh, what the new Microsoft Flight Simulator is going to be like. Yeah, looking forward to this, definitely. Uh, moving on to uh, the chat room. Big thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room today. Just a few names here, all the usual family members. Uh, we've got uh, Alan Loveday, Liz Piper, Richard Adams, Mash is in there, Lane Street. Uh, we've got uh, James J. Hello to you, James J. James J. actually passed his CFI check ride uh, this past week. So well done to you, James J. Very good. Uh, we've got. We've got John Jester. Hello to you, John Jester. Jenny in Rome. Hello to you, Jenny. Uh, we've got Rakon, who's also in the chat room. Just scrolling down. Main man Micah is also in the chat room, keeping an eye on things with his blue spanner. Uh, we've got, uh, obviously, Armando's in the chat room as well, which is always handy to have. Uh, but welcome to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room today. And don't forget as well, uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this show, take yourselves over to YouTube and uh, you can hit subscribe and the bell icon, which is right next to that, and you'll be notified when we go live uh, on YouTube recording new episodes and that uh, you'll be able to join us in the chat room along with all the wonderful family members in there. So, uh, yeah, that's great. So it's obviously the beginning of the month uh, thereabouts, or nearly the beginning of the month, I'd say. We're second week in now. But uh, it's obviously time of the month to say a big thanks to everyone. So, Nev, uh, well, who are we thanking this month? Yeah, well, of course, as you well know, we can't do this show without assistance from our Patreon and PayPal donors. And this month, uh, they are Louise uh, Ch- uh, Carrot, Cab. I can never pronounce his name. I do apologise. Caceres. Alan Loveday, Nico Rega, uh, Andrew Van der Sarg, Alan White, Stephen Howland, uh, Tanya Wyman, Megan Carrion, Jacob Darlington Brown, Nicholas Hewitt, Masher, Owen, Ruben Wells, Neil Lanwarn, Graham Haley, Jonathan Warner, Eric Graves, Matt Caton, Jordan Rose. Andrew Wilson, Evan Shue, Captain Jeff, Adam Spink, Liz Piper, Jeff Ward, Myla, Philip Labe, Stuart Backer, 
Ray Williams and Stephanie Plummer. And from the PayPal uh, donators, it's Mazuz Kareem, Jennifer Parkinson, Tony Stubbings and Richard, Richard Adams. Thank you very much to all of you for your fantastic generosity. And I can confirm this uh, this month we have uh, invested a fraction of what uh, um, what you guys have uh, kindly donated this week just to give Matt a little bit of extra airflow in the PTUK studios because as some of you may know it does get really hot in the PTUK studios so Matt has now got himself a really really nice little USB powered fan to keep him cool in there so um, a big thanks to everyone again as Nev said who is kindly helping to support and to uh, help us bring you the show each week so thank you one and all and and of course Carlos if anybody ever wants to visit the PTUK studio that's how I got started next thing you know you're going to end up on a podcast Yes, there is room for three in the PTUK. There we go. Matt's uh, got the, uh, the fan. Um, obviously, the fan. What would, uh, and it's a really, it's quite a funky fan, actually. It's got a timer and everything. It's really Ooh, good. Nice. But uh, we are going to start the show then, as we do each week, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So, if all the team's ready. Yes, we are. Let's go. <laughs> So, kicking off this week's first news story, this one's on Flight Global. We love Flight Global. Nice font on that one. So, the A350-900 operators alerted to Trent XWB84 blade or Dash 84 blade cracking. Uh, Rolls-Royce is attempting to reassure investors and operators of the A350s over the impact of the latest durability problem to hit its Trent wide-body engine family. Actually, Nev, what uh, can you remember what engine it was, which was um, the one that is that they had the problem with with the Dreamliner back back in the day? Was that the the same engine? Was it the Trent 1000? Yeah, the Trent 1000 they had. Uh, but yeah, they've, they've got an issue with uh, with these engines again on here. For the moment, there will be extra inspections on the engines over and above those previously scheduled. Uh, the process will take around 30 to 60 minutes. does not require the engines to be taken off the aircraft. And uh, if you want to know more about engine inspections as well, don't forget uh, you can go back to episode 314 where we had Peter Collings as a guest on the show. Um, Yes, need to log in to look at that. I didn't log in before, but no. uh, Flight Global, you need to log in. Nev, is there anything on that story that uh, you want to add? Well, um, I think that the with new aircraft and new engines, there are always the potential for issues. And, of course, you can do lots of testing uh, in the factory and in the lab and all the rest of it, but until the engines get on the aircraft and they're put into real-world use and at a variety of weights, at a variety of temperatures, you're really not going to know the the full story. So I think every engine that has probably been manufactured by any manufacturer has probably at some stage had to go through some revision uh, because of um, things that they have found in flight. What what do you think about that, Armando? Is that that reasonable? Uh, I completely agree because I was looking at something else. Fantastic. (laughs) 
Brilliant. Um, yes. So, the, but so, Off no, to I, a great start. I, I think that, um, and don't forget, that, I mean, the A350-900 uh, is a medium to long range aircraft anyway. So um, you're going to need uh, to, to run it in, in the real world to, to see what some of these issues are sometimes. So. Yeah, these, um, the engineers, the actual Rolls-Royce himself, are pushing towards rectifying the issues with the engine. Um, so it, hopefully, I mean, we met these guys at the uh, Dubai Air Show, didn't we, when they were back yes, uh, last true. year? And, um, yeah, you know, I think um, this is just, you know, they'll, they'll, I think Rolls-Royce will get this sorted fairly swiftly. Mm. And also only affects the Dash 900 and not the 1000 series. Mm. So. Yeah. And actually, I'm yet to fly on a 350, Nev, because you've actually had, you've had the, the uh, opportunity to fly on a 350. Well, you've you? been on a 1000. Oh, sorry, I had a 1000 I've flown on. Yeah, I haven't flown on the nine, Dash 900. Do keep up, honestly. Yes, you I went know, to Dubai on a Dash 1000. <laughs> uh, but I went to Helsinki on the Dash 900 with those... Finair. Finair. Finair, yeah. Finair, yeah. Yes, and uh, very nice it was too, I've got to say. Excellent, excellent aircraft. So, Nev, next story is uh, a Ryanair one. And, uh, I, I mean, I've heard of five-star, but seven-star? Well, I, I'm not qualified normally to talk about <clears throat> Ryanair stories whatsoever, <laughs> uh, but I'll, I'll give it a bash. Uh, this is on the airlineratings.com website, and it says Ryanair soars to a seven-star airline. Ryanair, one of the industry's leading low-cost airlines, is now rated as a seven-star airline for safety by global rating agency AirlineRatings.com. After consultation with the industry, the world's most respected airline rating agency has refined its safety rating criteria to move the focus from audits to real-world outcomes in pilot performance. In the industry first, AirlineRatings.com has examined, uh, examined over 11,000 serious incident reports since 2015 to arrive at an incident rating for airlines. Incidents and crashes now account for five of the seven-star ratings. So Ryanair has had a fatality-free record since it was formed in 1985. Uh, AirlineRatings.com editor-in-chief Jeffrey Thomas said, Ryanair's safety record is superb, and at every touch point, passenger safety is paramount. Our refined safety rating system recognises the achievements of airlines such as Ryanair that have perfectly fatality-free records, says Mr Thomas. There's a growing concern industry-wide at some pilot performance issues and we have evolved our rating system to put greater focus on outcomes with ryanair we found an extremely low incident rate and virtually none attributable to pilots that performance and its covid19 compliance for passengers gains ryanair the top safety rating of seven stars says mr thomas its fleet is built around the top selling uh, boeing 737-800 ng uh, the 737 is the world's most reliable aircraft, says Mr. Thomas. The airline is at the forefront of COVID-19 protocols to protect crew and passengers. And uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good record to have. And, of course, you bear in mind the numbers numbers of sectors they actually operate across the world um, every day of the week, uh, both in the UK and European region. Um, yeah, it's it's a record to be proud of, but clearly they're not complacent about it. And they're always doing their very best to ensure passenger safety. I know. Yeah, the, the, uh, I was going to say, Nev's, Nev's not the biggest fan of Ryanair, but you know, when you want a cheap flight somewhere, 
Well, I, I can't, I can't complain about that at all. Um, <laughs> But yes, considering uh, say the number of sectors they operate and, and the operation itself, uh, the safety record is pretty fantastic. Mm. Sorry, I'm yeah, you do, yeah, you do have to admit for so Ryanair has revolutionized the the way low cost carriers operate, and they have a lot of third party um, operations, including uh, you know not third party pilots, but par- pilots that are maybe not necessarily employed by the airline, but uh, but you know are contracted to the airline and the way they operate you would think would lend itself to an increased risk in their operations and like nev was saying uh, all the places that they fly daily and their quick turns that that they're you know scheduling their crews to do with third-party ground crews and things like that so it is actually a pretty amazing uh, feat that that they've managed to do that relatively incident free because um because a lot of those things are, are sort of out of their control with, with those, you know, not owning all of those assets, including, you know, people as assets. Actually, there's a video on that story for those of you uh, who click on the links in the show notes. There's actually quite an interesting video on that story. If you guys watched it where the, it shows the um, cleaning regime on board one of their 737-800s. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's I'm glad that they're including that, but that's still an evolving thing, you know, cleaning aircraft. I, I know at the company that I work for, we're still trying to figure out exactly how much deep cleaning we need to do between flights and, and how we're going to do that. You know, some, there's some uh, electrostatic sprayers out there. Some are just wiping it down. But then wiping it down is causing the leather to crack or the pleather. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's so that, it, it is interesting that it, they included that into their safety readings. But has I, it but affected I guess um, your turnaround time as much, Armando, with the extra cleaning as such? Not too much for us, but when I commute on uh, Delta or American, they, you know, they, they, you can see that they're working a little bit. I don't know if they've brought on extra cleaning crews to, to, you know, to sort of start as the passengers are still deplaning or something like that. But I can imagine that on a, you know, a 737 or something like that, it would take an extra five minutes to, to clean that airplane or something. Hopefully more than that. But <laughs> So uh, if you're listening, Matt, turn, uh, take your headphones out of your ears for the next story. Armando, um, a bit of a shocking story for the next one. Yeah. So this one is, uh, it's a, something that happened last year. I believe it was September last year where, um, at least from the Sky News article, they they reported that this EasyJet was taken off from Lisbon and it was about a second from potential catastrophe. So I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs, but the, the Airbus A320 took off from Lisbon Air, Airport with just 110 meters of tarmac remaining after the crew members used the wrong calculations for the runway that they used. Um, basically, I... I was looking, this is, sorry, now this is what I was looking at because I was looking at the AAIB report. The Lisbon airport is set up a little bit confusing manner and um, the taxiway that they use to ta- to get out to the runway, it, it's one of those that takes a turn where it would mislead you to think that that is the end of the runway. And the crew had put in their calculations for a full length runway takeoff. And uh, we're, surely we're going to put the 
the link to the AAIB report in the show notes. Um, and that's got some really good pictures to kind of explain how this goes. So there's a sort of a comedy of errors that happened here um, leading to this potential mishap. But so during, during the pre-flight preparations, the crew, they were interrupted numerous times. They inadvertently selected the wrong takeoff data in their EFB, which is basically an iPad. Or it could be some sort of electronic flight, uh, flight bag. Uh, lots of aircraft are equipped with a system in, inside the FMS that says, hey, I'm going to take off from this runway, uh, from this intersection or full length, and it calculates the performance uh, for you. Uh, all of that was done for a full length takeoff. As they were taxiing out, they basically got distracted and took off, leaving about uh, almost a half of the runway behind them. Um, so at the point that they rotated, they were if you look at the pictures, they were actually past the threshold markings and they were almost um, at, at the very end of the runway where the displaced, displaced threshold um, uh, has about a couple hundred feet. So they, can't, they did come pretty close to dragging those wheels through the, through the grass. They certainly would have taken out a couple of runway lights, if not the fence at the end of the runway. But, uh, but this is, it's very, it just drives the point that it's so important to focus on taxing when you're taxing. And if you're unfamiliar with the airport, um, to take an extra second or two to have the taxi plates, the taxi diagrams open and make sure that you know exactly where you're, where you're taxing to. Yeah, all of the first officers and captains I've ever spoken to, they've all more or less said the same thing in these sort of circumstances. You know, the, the flying bit is pretty straightforward but it's the preparation uh, and the concentration during the taxi out when situations might change, you might get a different taxi routing and it's so easy to be distracted by perhaps a, a cabin crew member or, or anything um, that allows your concentration to wander. And in critical situations like this, you, you can see why this is easily done, can't you? Absolutely. And, and there was a language barrier here too, uh, in addition to a, a vocabulary barrier, if we want to call it that, because they air traffic controller did not was not referring to the taxiways by their by their marked names. So visually, they they didn't they missed an extra cross check because the controller was guiding them um, out to the runway, and 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 that didn't match up with the markings that they were seeing on the ground. So. Um, yeah, very close to, to becoming a more serious mishap, but a good learning point for all of us in aviation, like no matter what you fly. Yeah, just like every aviation incident or accident, it's a series of events that enable the, uh, the Swiss cheese to line up. That's exactly it. Yeah. So the next story is uh, on the Simple Flying website, this one. And... Uh, this one is for a sightseeing flight to nowhere. So for those in Taiwan missing uh, the international travel experience, relatively new startup Starlux Airlines is launching a flight to nowhere for the purpose of sightseeing. The offer was uh, announced this past week and marketed as, a, as pretending to go abroad. 
uh, at all for taking passengers over the Taiwan-controlled Pratas Islands in the northern part of the South China Sea. The one-time experience took form as flight JX8888, interesting flight number, on top of being a specialised tourist experience. Data from Flight Radar 24 indicated that the three-and-a-half-hour flight took place on August the 7th, using the airline's brand new Airbus A321neo. The aircraft is less than a year old, having been delivered to Starlux last October. Focus Taiwan reports that a total of 188 tickets for Friday's flight were scooped up in the span of just 30 seconds. Thus, with this popular demand, Starlux spokesman Ni Kui says the airline is planning a second air travel pa- uh, tour package for mid-August, which will be completely different from this first experience. Starlux commenced operations at the beginning of 2020. Well, what a year to start flying. Uh, earning it a spot on the list of unluckiest airlines. Two months into its operations and the airline was forced to suspend its services due to the global health crisis. And operations have since resumed. Uh, there's also another story in a similar uh, Antarctic sightseeing on simple flying. While Australians may be unable to uh, travel internationally due to COVID-19, Qantas and travel firm Antarctica Flights have got together to offer possibly the world's most unique scenic flight. Starting from November, travellers will be able to take in the frozen continent with departures leaving from Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, Perth and Sydney. What is extra special about the flight besides the stunning views is that you do not need a passport as the 236-seat Boeing 787 is taking off from and touching down in Australia. The trip is regarded as being a domestic flight. So whilst uh, it is very difficult for Australians to travel overseas, they say, at this time, our Antarctica flights guests will be able to visit another continent in a day. During the flight, passengers uh, are all provided with drinks and offered a meal service while watching videos about what they can expect to see. Uh, The Antarctica flights also have expert lecturers on board who give talks and then walk through the cabin answering specific questions. The flight itself is reasonably long with not much to see until the aircraft is about three hours into the journey. It's then that passengers will start to see floating ice on the watery blue expanse below. Once over the mainland, the plane hugs the coast as the captain takes her down to a lower altitude for better viewing, heading inland between several mountains, and the aircraft then makes a loop around the magnetic south pole before heading home to Australia. Prices for the seats on one of the scheduled seven flights start from around 1199 Australian dollars, or that's around $857 US or £655 sterling. For a place over the wing, up to seven thousand nine hundred ninety-nine Australian dollars, or five thousand seven hundred fourteen US dollars, or just under four and a half thousand pound for business class. The flights will operate between November and February, which is when the continent sees its best weather. And to find out more about these Antarctica flights, you can click on the link that will be in the show notes. Ah. I don't know. It sounds um, sounds quite nice, actually. I wonder if um, how many our chat room uh, people would love to uh, to have a go on that. I'm guessing Grant McCarran and Steve Fisher would probably um, yeah like definitely. to have a go on this. I have a point of order on this story. <laughs> so you're going to pay three thousand nine hundred ninety nine Australian dollars to sit in 
probably row 14E, which is the middle seat on a Dreamliner. And that, and you're going to go sightseeing in Antarctica. So I don't know that you can see out the windows from the, <laughs> yeah, I think what they're doing, Armando, with this particular flight is um, halfway, uh, or say halfway through the actual visual tour of of Antarctica. They're cha- you can swap. They're swapping seats with other passengers that are close to obviously the windows. So I think that they're they're making it so all the passengers will get a chance to sit on a window seat that that looks out with an unobstructed view. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Right. I'd be, I would be a little bit angry if I paid 4,000 bucks and <laughs> <laughs> didn't get to see Antarctica. I think we would. I th- I'll tell you what, it's, it's a, definitely a site that I would definitely love to see myself. Yeah. So, yeah. So, oh, Richard Adams in the chat room says, it's a bit ironic taking a special flight to go and watch the melting ice caps. Oh. Yes. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I see your point. I see your point. Yeah. So moving on to uh, the next story, and uh, this one's for Nev, and obviously it's going to be a BA story. It is, and some good news by the looks of things. It's on the simpleflying.com website, and it says that uh, over the past month, BA has been flying its fleet of Airbus A380s to London Heathrow one by one. The flights were undertaken to take the aircraft for maintenance visits. Now the entire fleet has been back to its London Heathrow home. Parking an aircraft isn't as simple as finding space at an airport and then leaving it until it's needed. Given their complex nature, planes must be maintained during their time parked or undergo undergo preparations for an extended period of grounding. One by one, BA has been bringing its Airbus A380 fleet back to Heathrow. Uh, when one returned to Chateau, uh, another flew to London. Now the final plane, which is Golf X-Ray Lima Echo Echo, Funnily enough, the exact aircraft that is over my shoulder at the moment, because that's a nice picture that my uh, children got me. Uh, that's a, that is exactly that plane. And the flight, the flight uh, took place uh, the other day. Uh, the fact that the British Airways is maintaining its fleet is good news, though. It means that the airline sees the aircraft type as a serious part of its fleet in the coming years. If the airline wasn't anticipating using the giant of the skies for some time, or at least for over a year, it would send them into deep storage. Uh, so the fact that BA is spending money maintaining the fleet shows that it's not seriously entertaining the possibility of scrapping the type anytime soon. Uh, since the current pandemic started, two aircraft have flown to Manila for heavy maintenance. So when is the aircraft, uh, sorry, the Airbus A380 fleet going to be back? Well, unfortunately, when asking that question is like asking how long is a piece of string. Whilst the decision makers at BA may have an idea, nobody else really knows. Uh, The return of the aircraft will depend on demand. As the largest aircraft in the BA fleet, it will likely be the last to return. Additionally, whilst the recovery on short-haul routes within Europe is going well, many of the high-density international routes where the A380 proves its worth for BA in the past are currently still suspended. So if you take Los Angeles, for example, most in Europe are currently banned from travelling to the US, whilst most in the US are also banned from travelling to Europe. So as such, demand is down by such a degree that smaller aircraft are sufficient for this route. Whilst it may not be back tomorrow, it seems relatively sure that the Airbus A380 will return to the BA fleet. With an average age of just 5.8 years, it would be a surprise to see it scrapped. 
The airline has found the perfect niche for this aircraft at London Heathrow Airport. During regular times, it allows the airline to condense two popular flights down to one, thus opening up a slot pair for another route. So until they return to service, uh, the Airbus A380 fleet will likely remain in Shutterer. In the recent IAG Q3 results presentation, it was indicated that four of the giants might end up going into storage in the meantime. So very slowly, we're getting back to some sort of normality, although I think it will be a while yet before we see the full operation of the A380 for BA. Mm. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Now, if you know when you um, you sound about the storage of these aircraft, obviously when the while well, this pandemic's been on, and you know BA have sent all their um, 380s to be stored. Is it is it somewhere over the west of the UK? Uh, well, yes, there, there was yes, they were at Cardiff, they were down at Bournemouth, um, and other places as well. Yes, and you think the BA have sent all their stuff to be stored over there, and an airline such as Emirates, which has the largest fleet of A380s. And um, I think that they've got such, the Dubai airport so huge that even though they have been using their um, 380s, they've, they've, they haven't had to fly them anywhere because they've got loads of parking. They've got the space there. Yeah. 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 So, yes. I mean, I think that, well, when you're an airline like Emirates that relies, uh, where they've got so many of the aircraft, for example, and because they're perfectly positioned right in the middle of the, the Middle East as well, Uh, They've got good options going west to Western Europe and the United States or going east to Asia and Australia. So, um, Mm. yeah, I think there's um, there's a lot more to play out for this aircraft yet. But um, slowly we're seeing some improvement, I'm pleased to say. Well. So if you we'll want to know, uh, Oscar, sorry, sorry, go wanna, ahead. Oh, sorry. If you want to know more about uh, just a quick note, point of note uh, about aircraft storage and stuff um, on here, you can take yourselves over to uh, it's episode three fourteen, and that's story number twelve, where we had Peter Collins and Andy from the A three twenty podcast, where they talked about aircraft storage. So just a quick note there, Armando, carry on. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> I see what you did there. Um, I was just going to say Emirates has started flying their, their A380s because we're going to talk about that in the next story about, uh, you know, this, I guess what we're calling a flying recovery. Um, so well, might as well go into it, but OAG, which is a company that tracks and analyzes air traffic data, has uh, suggested that air travel recovery may have actually peaked within the last week. The world's airlines offered uh, just over 60 million seats last week, according to them. But the figure dropped below that mark again this week. Um, scheduled capacity indicates that we should be up to seven, 75 million seats by the end of the month, according to one of their senior analysts uh, that is speculating that will not actually happen. So air traffic has continued to grow gradually in the recent weeks as much as it can uh, during the summer and and. Uh, the surge in COVID-19, but uh, the U.S. has seen a high level of infections. Passenger throughput at TSA checkpoints remains in the range of 700,000 people per day. Uh, The peak was on August 9th, which was uh, 831,789 passengers going through. So a typical day in August of last year would have had around 2.5 million travelers. So we're still not quite there yet. And as we were just talking about, Emirates has uh, started flying 13 of their A380s again to a handful of markets. Um, 
And just like you were saying, Carlos, since the A380 forms a significant portion of the Emirates fleet, uh, it isn't necessarily a, uh, a, a, as bullish an indication as it might be otherwise. Uh, China Southern is also operating a fleet of five A380s to bring to 18 the, num the total number of that aircraft that is uh, operational currently, at least. Um, let's see, Western Europe has been among the strongest markets throughout the summer, but they're too, uh, they're seeing some spikes in infection numbers that has brought on new travel restrictions and cuts from some other airlines. Finnair announced yesterday that it would be scaling back some European flying in September. So interestingly, uh, looking at OAG data for worldwide airline fleets and which aircraft are being utilized more or less uh, lately, the clear winner in terms of seats is the ATR, turboprop. <laughs> has a 3.6% uh, rise in use. So that uh, small airplane is cheap to operate. It's commonly used on domestic flights, which may give us an insight into the current airline sentiment, at least over in Europe. Um, let's see, notably, most uh, major, wi uh, major wide body airplane types saw small decreases in seats offered in the last couple of weeks. Um, they started seeing uh, plenty of seven triple sevens being added to the schedules as a reliable indicator that things may be looking up, but no indications quite yet. So, yeah, I think it's the problem, isn't it? Because this is such a dynamic environment. If you compare it to, uh, we always compare it to nine 11, don't we? And, and the global downturn, but uh, with nine 11, uh, it was a reasonably straightforward return to flight with cockpit door improvements other security improvements at airports and all the rest of it. And then we went back to how it was fairly quickly. With this situation, just as you think you've turned the corner or things are improving, it can take a downturn and things can go very badly very quickly. So we, we are sort of riding this wave all the time of not knowing what the next thing is going to be. And uh, this is going to continue for, for some months, many months yet, I, I think. I think yeah. if if you look on flight radar 24, I mean, even here or in the US or here in the UK, especially, you know, if you look on there any time of the day and compare what it's like or what it's like at four or five in the afternoon compared to a year ago at four or five o'clock in the afternoon, there's a massive, massive difference in the amount of uh, aircraft in the air, especially over the UK, Nev. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yes, every time I hear an aircraft, <laughs> I now look up because it's uh, it's been quite unusual. So it's been, been nice to see it. Uh, nice to see that Heathrow are back at uh, two runway operation for, for the most part as well. So that's uh, an indication that things are getting better. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think in general, too, after 9-11, you, you had uh, many countries that coalesced in, in a united recovery and, you know, a recovery from a singular event and we're just not having that with the COVID response from individual countries. And as there are flare-ups in one part of the world, other parts of the world are, are controlling it. Well, the whole point of air travel is, is to connect those parts of the world, which is, which is the risk. So yeah, I completely agree with you, Nev. Yeah. And if, if you wanted the definition of, of disruption and the unknown, then, then this is it, isn't it? Yep. Definitely. So next story, moving on, is on the bbc.co.uk website. Love the BBC. 
And uh, they're actually using the correct photo, which is always a, a bonus, like I think. That. Yeah, we like that. And uh, the uh, headline on here, 10 hurt in unnecessary plane evacuation at London Stansted. So 10 passengers were hurt when a member of uh, a cabin crew ordered an unnecessary aircraft evacuation. An air accidents investigation branch, AAIB report, has found. The left engine uh, failed on takeoff of a scheduled louder motion flight from London Stansted to Vienna in 2019. Several people were blown over by the exhaust while evacuating and could have been sucked into the right-hand engine, the report stated. The plane was uh, beginning its takeoff roll around uh, 8 o'clock in the evening on the 1st of March when a loud bang was heard and the aircraft immediately drifted towards the left-hand side of the runway, the investigators said. The pilot of the A320-200 came to a full stop on the runway and twice announced over the public address system, or PA system, attention crew on station, but the senior flight attendant did not hear. She then ordered the evacuation of the 169 passengers on board, but the pilot and the co-pilot were not informed nor aware until they noticed the evacuation slide had been deployed and passengers were moving across the front of the aircraft. When the pilot asked the senior flight attendant why this was happening, she said that she believed that she'd been ordered uh, to do an evacuation, the reporters said. Uh, The pilot noticed passengers were heading towards the right-hand engine, which was still operating at the time. Had any of them entered the right-hand engine inlet uh, suction air danger area, it's possible they could have been sucked into the engine, which would not have ended too well. Investigators found there was a contained failure of the left-hand engine, which was due to a part being improperly assembled. The senior flight attendant told investigators she was, uh, did not hear the pilot's announcement to the crew because she was focused on the loud noise of the engine. Uh, with all passengers looking at her, she fell under pressure and shocked and overwhelmed, the report said. Due to issues with a phone falling out of its cradle, a senior flight attendant had to communicate with fellow flight attendants via a combination of phone, PA system and hand signals in a dark cabin. The report said a combination of factors overwhelmed the senior flight attendant and caused her command uh, to command an evacuation that was not necessary. Several passengers were blown over by the exhaust with 10 people receiving minor injuries and two requiring hospital treatment. The report also found a few passengers said they had suffered from post-traumatic stress for which they were receiving treatment. Investigators also highlighted several passengers hindered the evacuation by taking, surprise, surprise, their baggage with them. Yeah. Investigators also highlighted uh, the, the, the um, obviously this baggage being taken with them, which is something which is um, not a good thing to do, obviously, when you're taking things off the aircraft when you shouldn't be. Uh, the AOB has made two safety recommendations in regards to passengers evacuating with carry-on luggage and says the hazard uh, will still exist in future emergencies unless additional measures are taken. The operator has since taken safety actions based around the training of its flight attendants. And the spokesman for, or spokeswoman for the airline has said, uh, Loud Emotion welcomes the AAIB report on the engine failure at London Stansford, which acknowledges Loud Emotion's subsequent safety actions. Oh, dear. That, would, that could have been very nasty. Well, I'm going to put Armando on the spot here. Um, because I've not given him, given him any advance uh, or <laughs> this question. I thought only the commander of the aircraft could order an evacuation. Is that correct? No. So 
uh, I've actually listened to Captain Nick talk about this, and at his airline, the uh, flight attendants, the cabin crew, was able to um, uh, initiate an evacuation by themselves. And I believe that is uh, the case here also at some airlines is uh, the the crew members can can uh, see a situation. Now, they should consult the, the flight deck, but um, but I don't think it's actually required. Yeah, interesting. But it, mm. uh, always with these situations, it's all about the communication uh, every time. So. Yeah. I did yeah. think it was funny. I remember when I was – well, I guess it wasn't that long ago. A couple, you know, maybe five, five, six years ago, there used to be this show in the U.S. called MythBusters. I don't know if you guys had it over there. Yay. Yeah, MythBusters. They did a couple things on or a show on on evacuations, and I've also watched some documentaries on aircraft evacuations. And one of the recommendations that came out of this is, hey, when you guys are practicing those simulated evacuations, have people take their bags with them because that's what's going to happen, and you know, we may see a change in the required, I believe it's 90 seconds that most places have to evacuate their aircraft in. But but some of those procedures may change <laughs> if they take into account that people are going to stop to grab their bags out of the overheads and from under the seats. So. Yeah, actually, one of the safety recommendations um, from the report, it's uh, said that it's recommended that the uh, European Union Aviation Safety Agency consider including a more realistic simulation of passengers behaving in regards to carry-on baggage in the test criteria and procedures for the emergency demonstration. I think we should all go down there, you know, and be, and be test subjects on well, these evacuation honestly, I, I think that that is long overdue because all of the uh, evacuation evacuation tests i've ever seen has been everybody just getting oh, up getting up yeah oh, hello. getting off the aircraft but by being shoved out of the door by the the cabin crew but um uh, as we've seen on so many occasions um people will not do that and i think mm. that, that has to be factored into uh, what happens in in real life doesn't it definitely so, Nev, moving on to uh, story number eight, and uh, High Fly have not been flying high. Uh, no, uh, which is a bit of a shame, really, because uh, I like this airline. I think that's, uh, well, apart from the paint job and the uh, fantastic tour we had of their A380 uh, at Farnborough. Uh, gosh, so it seems such a long time ago now, doesn't it? Uh, so, yes, as Carlos said, it's on the Simple Flying website. And it says, Highfly's Airbus A380 causes panic and joy after flying just 230 metres above the coastline. Earlier this week, Highfly caused panic and joy as it flew uh, over holidaymakers enjoying the beach. The Portuguese charter airline said that the performance was planned and intended to raise awareness as well as give plane spotters a treat. So let's take a look at what's happened. So in a rare treat to see uh, the uh, high-fly Airbus A380 in operation at such a close range, but that's precisely the treat that some holidaymakers in Portugal got on Wednesday, August the 5th. The A380, which was registered as Nine Hotel Mike India Papa, uh, flew just 230 metres above the Algarve coastline, a stunt that impressed many keen aviation enthusiasts. The airline's vice president, Carlos Mirpuri, uh, reported piloting the aircraft in a planned event. Uh, the aircraft was completing a functional flight check, which lasted just under an hour. 
It uh, left Beja uh, International Airport uh, at uh, quarter to three local time and flew over Faro and Villamora. Before it left uh, Beja Airport, it published an alert on its Twitter account urging lucky enthusiasts to look out for the aircraft as it passed over the Algarve. Uh, despite the excitement that Highfly shared, some onlookers were fearful when the plane grazed the coastline. In a video filmed from the beach and posted on YouTube, beachgoers are seen retreating from the sea and running up the beach. Perhaps they were trying to get a beer, possibly. Uh, but uh, according to reports, various calls were made to the National Emergency Services, fearing that the aircraft might make a water landing. However, for those with a trained eye and others who had arrived for the spectacle, the flight was a controlled affair. Eventually, as the A380 passed the beach, holidaymakers stared in wonder. According to High Flight, the low flight was also somewhat of a political stunt. It hoped that, that with the Save the Coral Reefs livery, the trip would be able to inspire people to think about the sea. It told uh, a Twitter user in a comment that the aircraft was doing a planned and necessary uh, after-maintenance functional flight check and took this opportunity for raising awareness, uh, raising awareness for marine converse, uh, conservation causes. Uh, well, despite the initial mixed reactions, Highfly carried out its flight with respect to safety. Typically, aircraft should fly no lower than 500 feet above people, which is just over 150 metres. In this case, the aircraft was well above that altitude. Uh, this is an event which will no doubt be remembered fondly in the airline and aircraft's history. The aircraft is ex-Singapore Airlines, who leased it back in 2008. The plane enjoyed nearly 10 years service with that airline, before it was stored in 2017. It was in July 2018 that Highfly acquired the aircraft and it's been a faithful part of its fleet ever since. And I have to agree, it's a fine looking aircraft and we enjoyed uh, going on that and doing interviews with Captain Al back at Farnborough. I remember that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, if I was on that beach, I wouldn't be fearful. I'd be saying, get you, my in camera. Get your long lens out. Mate. Get the long lens out. Okay. Wow. That, yeah. That's um, that's. The kind of uh, sightseeing that I uh, love to see on holiday. Yes, you know, to this day, I've never been on an A380, and that 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 day when you guys got to go on to the high fly A380, I was on the ground finding a beer tent with Captain Jeff, <laughs> and it wasn't until afterwards that I found out that you guys were in the A380, and I was I'm still yeah. sad to this day. We we should have invited you, shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> I've never been one on one in the air, I have to say. Uh, but uh, yeah, having a, a tour of it on the ground was was fantastic. But uh, yeah, there we go. Now you got to do it. It's good fun. It's good fun. So moving on to uh, the uh, the last story, and uh, looking at this, I'm just thinking back to my Commodore 64 days. Yeah, moving from one big airplane to another big airplane, and this story was actually sent in by Richard Adams. So. Uh, this is just a reminder to all of our listeners that if you've got a good story, send it in because we may have missed it in the current events. But uh, apparently scrapping airliners right now is providing a lot of opportunity for information security experts to learn a little bit more about hacking. So this story is about 747-400s still using floppy disks for, lo for loading critical navigation databases. Uh, Pen Test Partners has revealed in to the information security community at uh, DEFCON uh, after poking about one of the recently abandoned aircraft. Uh, 
this factoid emerged during a DEF CON video interview of PTP's Alex Lomas, where the man himself gave a walkthrough of a 747-400, its avionics bay, and the flight deck. So although airliners are not normally available to curious InfoSec researchers, a certain UK-based big airline's decision to scrap its Boeing 747 fleet gave Pentest partners a unique opportunity to get aboard one and have a poke about before the scrap merchants, which are friends of the show, set about their grim task. Uh, so while giving a tour of the aircraft, Lomas uh, pointed out that the navigation database loader uh, to certain readers of a certain vintage, that's us, I think, most of us here in this room, it'll look very familiar. It is loaded via a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk. Uh, so this database had to be updated about every 28 days. You can see how much of a chore, how much of a chore this has to be for an engineer to visit, uh, said the, uh, the engineer during the, the, the video pointing out the floppy drive, which is tucked away behind a locked panel. Uh, in a subsequent Q&A for DEF CON's virtual attendees, uh, the Pentest Partners Chief Ken Monroe asked Lomas about the points of interest to aviation infosec researchers. Uh, the key question everyone wanted to know in this particular interview was uh, uh, tough to answer, which it was whether or not you can, hack, you can hack an airliner from the cheap seats using the in-flight entertainment as an attack vector. Lomas observed, where we've gone deliberately looking, we've not found at this point any two-way communication between the passenger domain systems like the IFE and the control domain. There is a, quote-unquote, DMZ, a demilitarized zone of the information services domain that sits between the two. To jump between them, uh, the, two, the two layers of segregation would be tricky in his view. Uh, this has not stopped some people from trying most notably an infosec research, researcher from a Scottish university, oh my goodness, from a Scottish university who deployed a well-known pen testing technique against IFE equipment at the start of a nine-hour transatlantic flight. He only managed to knock out his own screen. <laughs> and we've talked about this a couple of times now, haven't we, about uh, that possibility of, of crossing the two domains, haven't we? Oh, yes. Yes, very much so. Um, now, uh, we're just talking about in the chat room what the capacity of those disks are. We've come to the conclusion that uh, it was 720 kilobytes for the smaller one and a whopping 1.4 megabytes for the big one. For the expensive ones. That's it. <laughs> but I, I guess because it's just... Um, reason it's it's all binary data, isn't it? So relatively small changes and things like that. It's not as though you're uploading big graphics and and things like that. But um, John yes. in the chat room says says that the navigations don't have more than a two eighty six processor. There you go. So uh, and John should know. So yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> the always the, the only thing that would worry me about those. Uh, types of disc the number of failures that you got with them you know disc not read and this sort of business and that that's not what you want to hear on a on a commercial airline. or error line 20 no don't want that no is it? no <laughs> <laughs> oh I remember, those, remember those old days oh it just brings back so many memories seeing those are like you know the old ataris and the vic 20s and the commodore 64s and to think something like that can um, can obviously supply a database for a 747. Yep. But, 
But it's, it works, and the aircraft has is, is done phenomenally well for Boeing. So, yeah, old school isn't necessarily um, a bad, way, bad thing to do. So, uh, yeah, actually, Lane Street in the chat room points, uh, makes a very good point, actually, that uh, he says that we went to the moon with far less. Yes, actually, I seem to remember, I forget what the comparison was, but someone was comparing it to, um, you know, the, the memory in, in your phone, for example. The, the, the average memory in your phone is far in excess of what was available to go to the moon uh, with. There you go. So, yeah, incredible. Yeah, apparently they're DX two fifty six process two sixty six processors. Yeah, ah. but uh, thanks to Richard Adams for sending us uh, that in. Don't forget if you uh, if you do find a story and you think we might have missed it, do uh, do email it across uh, to the show. Details coming up later on. So that was the end of the commercial news segment for this week. But uh, coming up next, uh, we have got uh, the next thrilling installment of the plain truths which uh, has been put together by uh, captain al and uh, our very own matt smith and this week matt and captain al are talking about this all-important black boxes Hello and welcome to another Plain Truths, and today we're going to be talking about the infamous Black Box. Joining me today, as always, is Captain Al. Hi, Captain Al. Uh, a very good evening. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Busy day? Good. Uh, yes, actually. All sorts of things going on, but uh, nothing exciting, I'm afraid. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's, that's a bit of a letdown. Never mind. Uh, listen, the black box. Now, uh, the, uh, one of my friends, when, when I was talking about this, actually said the phrase is, if the black box is so indestructible, why on earth don't they make the entire aircraft out of it? Which I think you, I'm sure is something that you've heard somebody say once before. <laughs> oh, many, many times. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, we could all travel around in a skip, uh, right. For those who, who um, are, they, are they well known for their aerodynamic properties, then? <laughs> not at all. And for those listeners uh, who may be in other parts of the world who don't know what a skip is, I want you to think of a large steel box that you put all of your rubbish in that then gets taken away. These these are quite large; they go on the back of a truck, so about the size of a shipping container. There you go. Right. We've got to fly around the shipping container. Right. So black boxes. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've got so, quite I've got a quite a, quite a list of questions I've got for this actually. So basically, what is it? What data do they store? Um, how are they located in the event of an incident? Obviously, because we've all seen the videos and things yep. where they go and retrieve them from the bottom of the deep blue sea. Um, um, what is it made of? Uh, and, and like I say, if it is uh, basically, you know, what is it? Okay. So black boxes. Well, first of all, they're not black. Uh, they oh. are bright orange. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's a disappointment so, from the start. <laughs> so the black box element comes from the fact that, uh, uh, well, it's basically that term of things that people don't know how they work. They're just, you know, black boxes. It's magic. And it goes back to the original origins of the recorders. So it's uh, just a, a, a colloquial term for the uh, recorders. There are two of them. There's an audio recorder and a data recorder. So the audio recorder is the cockpit voice recorder. Pretty much explains what it does, really. So <laughs> it records uh, the pilots on independent channels. There will be a, a captain channel, a co-pilot channel, 
uh, maybe a third occupant channel, and then there's like a, an ambient channel, so it just records general noise within the cockpit, all as individual streams. And uh, historically, they were recorded on magnetic tape. Of course, these days they're all recorded on solid state drives, so no moving parts. The other one is the flight data recorder. Again, historically, that was magnetic tape. These days, again, solid state recorder. Hence why they're these days known as DFDRs, digital flight data recorder. The DFDRs record a whole range of data, uh, everything from airspeed, altitude, rate of climb or descent, bank angle, G loading, to very, very uh, extensive data streams like the position of the rudder, uh, how much aileron input, where the side stick was, what the thrust setting was, what the engine's producing, masses and masses of amount of data. So if you think about anything pretty much on the aeroplane that has some form of electronic control, almost certainly its data will feed into the DFDR. Generally, it doesn't take the number of flushes that a particular toilet has made. That's not flight safety critical. <laughs> uh, oh, that's a surprise. <laughs> but certainly, even including the tyre pressures are fed into the DFDR. So two boxes, both bright orange in colour. That one records cockpit audio, one records all of the flight data. They are typically stored in the tail section of the aircraft. Uh, they are located there because it's very unusual for aeroplanes to reverse into mountain sides. <laughs> right. And okay. I mean that quite seriously. Yeah. Generally speaking, aeroplanes, if they're going to crash, tend to end up going nose first. So it's just generally the most likely place that they will be able to recover from the least likely place that they will get damaged. Now, that takes us on to the fact of how do you find them? Well, if the aeroplane crashes on ground, then trying to find two orange boxes isn't too difficult visually. They do also have transmitters on them that will transmit a locating signal. Uh, and that is particularly useful if you're trying to find them if the aircraft crashed into the sea. Uh, they're automatically triggered to start transmitting with a particular G-load, i.e. a crash, or if they become wet, i.e. they're underwater. Again, depending on sort of manufacturer, uh, those uh, transmitter signals can typically last up to sort of two or three months, sometimes longer than that, a little pingers. And they'll just put out a, a, a ping every sort of hour, if you like, to, to aid location. Um, why isn't the rest of the aeroplane made in the same material? Um, a combination of factors. They're not particularly heavy. They're made out of titanium. Uh, they are very strong. They're fire-resistant, obviously. Primarily, two factors, weight and cost. Titanium is quite expensive, uh, and it's also a little bit heavier than aluminium. And truthfully, uh, when the flight data recorders are recovered from accidents, they're quite often reasonably damaged. 
but the actual electronic components are quite small within a fairly large box. Right. So if you imagine the box to be the crumple zone, if you like, uh, they take the force and the, the, the components are, are fairly intact. Now, when this, these boxes are recovered, uh, they normally go off to laboratories where people in white coats will take the boxes apart and attempt to recover the data off these drives. And as you know, uh, with your computer experience, when you get presented with a storage device that's damaged, you just hope that you can get enough data off it, yeah, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Well, and of course, in, in this instance, I mean, you know, the data that's available on these devices, obviously the audio recordings from, from pilots and things, I mean, many, many a, a question has been ans answered by listening to the communications that were going on in the cockpit, for example. Um, but, I mean, I mean, the, the, this data is literally used to, to tell everyone, you know, what went wrong, essentially. Absolutely. Um, and there is... Uh, a huge amount of information that can be uh, garnered from these recordings that quite frankly would never be possible to work out if you didn't have them. So that's why they were brought about. Uh, I'm trying to remember when I'm going to speculate in the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, and obviously technology has, has advanced. And modern flight data recorders are able to retain quite a significant amount of data over several days of flying. Uh, because as we all know from our own computers, uh, storage is just gone up sort of exponentially, the requirement for and the availability of. So in exactly the same way, the, the ability to store more and more data. And it, yeah, it, it's very often been the final part of the jigsaw puzzle in working out what went wrong i mean so just i mean this may not be something you you can answer how i mean how how long does that data remain on the drive is it is is it sort of uh, like when you shut everything down it then wipes itself ready to start again or does it retain it for say two weeks or it's a difficult question to answer so it's a continuous recording loop right, if you yeah, like okay, so yeah. Uh, yeah, the same way with a lot of, CC, to... a lot of CCTV yes. systems, don't they? They, they? they have a rolling record um, over, yeah. say, two weeks or whatever the capacity of the drive mm -hmm. is. Yes, exactly that. So, obviously, one of the requirements is that it, the recording is sufficiently long to uh, allow the accident investigators to work out what happened. So, as technologies advance, they become longer and longer. Originally, they're only about half an hour long. Uh, as a continuous loop um, and, and you know these days they are many many hours if not days of data wow okay a fascinating subject captain al thank you you're welcome if you want to take your knowledge to the next level sign up for a subscription at the a320 lounge our online video courses combine whiteboard-style lessons with full failure demonstrations shot in 4K in state-of-the-art simulators using a professional production team. Go into your next simulator session with confidence, having seen failures run in real-time and with the background knowledge to answer any questions from your instructor. To get more information and to sign up, visit a320lounge.com.
Well, it's always nice to hear about black boxes, especially when they're actually orange, um, as we all know. Yeah, but it's a black box is a it's a mystery thing. And this is actually going to lead really well into a conversation that we've been having for a couple of weeks now. Um, it started when John and I were talking about the Atlas air crash. And I briefly mentioned cockpit voice recorder analysis. Now, Micah had ac- asked the question in the chat room, what what exactly is cockpit voice recorder analysis? So while Al was talking about uh, flight data recorders, which are all the parameters, uh, both for the aircraft, for the engines, um, one of the projects that I, or the project that I was most um, proud of working with the NTSB was specifically dealing with the cockpit voice recorder. And the cockpit voice recorder, um, as Al said, they're, they're digital nowadays, so, that, so it's digital tracks, and any audiophile or anybody that's in podcasting um, will recognize some of the terms. Um, it, it's basically a multi-track uh, audio coming from different microphones. So it, each um, regulatory authority has different specifications for how this air, how the CVRs should be both maintained and inspected and analyzed when a mishap happens. And the reason this is really, really important is because uh, there's a lot of liability at stake. So if you've seen the movie Sully, you probably remember the, or sorry, it was Miracle on the Hudson. Was that the name of the movie, right? Um, you probably remember the, the scenes of the courtroom where they're playing the cockpit voice recorder audio and, you know, they're, they're looking at each other and they, they seem to be listening to it for the first time together. Well, that's, that's not exactly how it happens. So, so it's generally a, a a big room with a long table and uh, there are representatives from multiple organizations there, both the airlines, the pilots, the pilots unions, the reps, the engines, uh, aircraft component manufacturers, the, uh, in our case, the FAA, the NTSB. So everybody's sitting there and there's so much liability at stake that everybody needs to agree on what is act, what exactly is being said, who's saying it, uh, what is human speech, what is not human speech, and that the transcript that is ultimately produced from that is, is accurate. So, so we um, in the military had the ability to do some voice uh, analysis, and we had some voice analysis tools that had very specific uh, algorithms that were designed to uh, detect and clean up human speech. So I've sent some pictures over to, to Matt. And if you guys are listening to the audio podcast, um, you're going to have to bear with me. I'll, I'll figure We'll figure out a way how to post these pictures. Maybe I'll do a little video segment at the end. But if Matt, if, if you would pop up that, that first picture there. Um, so on a two-dimensional uh, display, you can see uh, kind of how you would see it on a computer microphone or any recording that the left side of this, there, there's the recording is amplified and somewhere buried in there is a human voice or maybe a human voice. So one of the, the toolkits uh, that we used would, would be to um, take that and Matt, go to the next picture there, take a regular waveform and turn it into a three-dimensional spectrogram view. Uh, so that is time going one way, frequency going another way, 
and amplitude showing up as uh, as a color intensity. So in in this three-dimensional spectrogram view, we were actually able to identify human voice versus interference signals. So in, in the example that I popped up on the screen was a 400 hertz tone that could be uh, artificially produced by uh, something in uh, an electrical signal, something going wrong, uh, which, in, which itself may be indicative of a problem that happened at a certain point in time were uh, not audible to the human ear, but to a computer or to a microphone, we were able to see, or the NTSB is able to see, hey, something happened that changed the electrical current going into this recording device. And all of those are traditionally characterized, um, so, so it's easily identifiable. And, and the engineers and the recorder, the cockpit voice recorder analysis, analysts are able to say, hey, this is the piece of, equipment that failed that was producing this type of, of signal. Um, the next picture, Matt, is going to pop up there. Um, so, like I said, they are multi-track audio uh, th with different microphones. In this particular example, you have three different microphones or three different audio streams. One is the pilot's uh, basically headset, the co-pilot's headset, the jump seat headset, and a cockpit area microphone that is uh, capturing all of the ambient noise as well as the human voice. So each one of those audio streams is recording something different and you can use a cockpit voice recorder analysis tool to make sure, because there are machines, that, that the timestamps to, to the microsecond or the nanosecond is actually linked up and all of the tracks um, are actually uh, lined up to produce one stream of audio. Now, any one of these streams could be contaminated or corrupt, like if they're, if they're being recorded on a floppy disk or something like that, which they're not. Um, so Matt's going to pop up the next signal there. So you'll see, or sorry, the next picture. So you'll see that sometimes that, because they are machines, some, some things just go wrong. So sometimes the audio cuts out, sometimes the audio fades, uh, a, an artificial signal is, is introduced into the recording. And with these tools, they're able to uh, apply either a wideband noise removal or a narrowband noise removal, which is kind of a tone removal uh, tool to take all of those artificialities out and just leave the human voice. Um, now, having done that, you can also identify human voice. Um, so, the NTSB is able to, uh, regardless of the audio stream that is being uh, analyzed, uh, identify who is speaking. That is, if the co-pilot, for example, is out of their seat or the pilot is out of their seat and is being recorded on the cockpit area microphone as opposed to their headset microphone, um, the speaker identification algorithms are actually uh, able to identify that human voice from any other media. So if the family provides uh, a recording from a phone or something like that, or even from a previous ATC recording, they can match the voice to what's being recorded. That also identifies um, somebody that's not supposed to be in the cockpit. So if you remember, we were just talking about the movie 7700 uh, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 
that movie. So now you're, you're able to, to apply um, speaker tool or sorry, audio cleanup tools and speaker identification tool to figure out who's saying what on the recordings. Um, I'll move on to the next one, which is uh, oral alerts. So there's a lot of tones, bells, whistles. You hear them on the cockpit voice recorders. Sometimes they're not necessarily identifiable or, 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 or quickly identifiable. So the uh, investigators will extrapolate the audio from every single one of those tones that's supposed to be in the cockpit and match it to what's being recorded like that. They're able to identify that multiple alerts were going on in the cockpit at the same time or an alert went off but wasn't captured by another device. Um, so that's, you know, it's a really great tool to just say, hey, if it, if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, and it's probably a duck, and, and, uh, and able to use these tools to, to really n nail down on the timeline what alerts were happening, how often, and where they were being recorded. Um, so that, that helps in, in sort of the timeline development. Uh, the next picture that Matt's going to pop up there is pollution. So sometimes there's an artificial, artificial pollution that happens on an audio track and, and the investigators will take uh, one of these tools again to basically identify what isn't human voice and only leave that which is relevant to the investigation. Um, and that shows up as just a, a big blob on a two-dimensional um, picture, but on, on a three-dimensional spectrogram, it, you would actually be able to identify what's, what's voice and what's not voice. Um, the last picture, actually, that, that, that Matt's going to pop up there is just an example of a, uh, a GSM interference. So when we're telling people, hey, you got to put your phones in airplane mode, or maybe the Wi-Fi on board is interfering with the uh, cockpit voice recorder, it'll show up something as a, on a three-dimensional spectrogram across the spectrum, the frequency spectrum. So from a low tone to a high tone, it may be pulsed, it may not be pulsed, but basically this, right, uh, this kind of interference makes the investigation harder um, because it's just it's polluting that, that, those audio tracks. So with a tool, you're able to uh, find out what that interference is and then remove it from all of the tools, from all of the audio, and then amplify that track to bring it back to a sort of sitting in a room quality. Um, so there you go. That is probably as much as, as we want to go into. If you guys want, I can go into it a little bit further on a separate segment or something that we can produce on the side. But, uh, like I said, this was one of the most amazing things that I saw because the, where the NTSB uh, keeps these these cockpit voice recorders is actually kind of eerie. As you're walking down the hallway to the conference room where they do this analysis and the transcription, they have cockpit voice recorders from notable mishaps in history. I mean, we're talking all the way back to, to – uh, uh, you know, Eastern Airlines 401, which crashed into the Everglades, the Air Florida crash that went into uh, the Potomac River to some of the 9-11 aircraft, 
So th those, air, those CVRs and FDRs are all preserved in one hallway, almost as a museum to the fantastic work that these folks do up at the NTSB. Um, so there you go. It's an, it's an audiophile's uh, dream to be, to be able to, you know, apply some, some uh, I guess, amateur audio manipulation tools to something like this. And, and uh, it was great for me to see how these guys do that. So hopefully that answers your question, Micah. I could see you having a lot of fun with something like this, Nev. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's fascinating. And the amount of processing and manipulation that you have to do to actually make the whole thing clear. Because although, as I was just saying in the chat room, all of the CVRs I've ever heard, albeit on YouTube, I can see, the audio, audio quality has not been that good. But of course, if you think about the amount of ambient noise going on in the aircraft, even those boom headset mics, um, you know, they do pick up a lot of other extraneous sounds. So it takes a lot to actually filter all of that out so you can hear exactly what's going on and who's saying it. And as Armando is saying, it's recorded on a multi-track system, so they're, they're separate tracks for, for different mics. But, uh, yeah, a fascinating explanation, Armando. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Micah, for asking the question a couple, couple weeks ago. So we're going to uh, stay with you, Armando, because uh, the next uh, segment in the show is, uh, is all for you. All right. Well, let's knock out some military. Uh, John will keep us on track with time. And Matt, if you're ready, hit the button. I wish... I could say this first story is a, a fluke, but I've actually heard of it happening multiple times. This is from airforcetimes.com. An Air Force UH-1 Huey helicopter was forced to conduct an emergency landing at a local airport in Manassas, Virginia, Monday after being shot from the ground. A crew member received a minor injury, was treated, and then released to a local hospital, uh, said uh, the spokesman for Joint Base Andrews in an email. The helicopter, which was on a routine training mission assigned to the first helicopter squadron at Andrews, was damaged. Uh, the incident was first reported on Wednesday. The FBI is investigating the incident along with Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Uh, said the initial findings are that a bullet struck the aircraft. The Air Force later said that the helicopter was about 10 miles northwest of the airport near Middleburg, Virginia, at an altitude of about 1,000 feet when it was shot. Uh, Richard Alaba, the airport operations officer at Manassas Regional Airport, said in an interview that the airport's tower alerted them about 1220 that a military helicopter was coming in with an in-flight emergency. Uh, the crew member that was injured was bleeding uh, from his hand, apparently. So 1243, Andrews said that the helicopter landed safely. Paramedics arrived shortly afterwards. Uh, the FBI's Washington field office said in a statement that it dispatched special agents to its evidence response team and its evidence response team to the airport after receiving the uh, shooting reports. Uh, the FBI said that it is working jointly with our law enforcement partners, including the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, to determine the circumstances surrounding the event. Uh, there you go. So uh, obviously the FBI would like any information if you happen to live 
around Manassas or Middleburg, Virginia, uh, contact uh, those two organizations if, uh, if you know anything. But yeah, like I said, unfortunately, this has actually happened quite a bit. We used to fly one route over uh, from Fort Walton Beach, Florida, up through the mountains of eastern Tennessee and southern Virginia, and uh, we were known to get shot at, believe it or not, every once in a while. <laughs> in your own country. Level. Wow. Yeah, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't imagine that anybody's actually trying to shoot down an aircraft. I think they just see lights they hear things i don't know don't ask me maybe the chat room can chime in <laughs> as to why anybody would shoot at an aircraft period but yeah you know manassas is uh is is known for its civil war it's a civil war battlefield so yeah captain cruz in the chat room maybe it was reenactment day and it was an errant musket bullet <laughs> going towards uh this helicopter but I, I just don't get it, but it, it was a fact of life knowing that if you were <laughs> over eastern Tennessee, southern Virginia, northern Alabama, that you could potentially get shot at. So, so from one story uh, to the next, this next story is, uh, well, this is something that I think Jonathan Warner would uh, love to be at. Uh, this is on news8000.com. Uh, Volk Field to host 50 aircraft, 1,000 service members for Northern Lightning Training. So Camp Douglas, uh, the Volk Field Combat Readiness Training Center, will host about 50 aircraft and nearly 1,000 service members during the annual Northern Lightning uh, Counterland Training Exercise uh, between August 10th and 21st. Units from as close as the backyard in Wisconsin and neighboring Minnesota, as well as far-flung states such as California, Idaho, and New York, Vermont, and Virginia will participate uh, in military branches to be represented um, that include the National Guard and Air Force, Army, and Navy. Northern Lightning began in the early 2000s and expanded into a large-scale exercise in 2015. It became a biannual exercise in 2018 and 2019 and returned to annual exercise this year. The exercise presents tactical-level joint training drills with current and future weapons platforms, a variety of the world's most advanced aircraft, including fifth-generation aircraft such as the F-35, will participate in the exercise. Bulkfield CRTC is one of the premier training installations in the country because of its expansive airspace and the quality of training it can simulate. Northern Lightning, one of uh, seven Air National Guard joint accredited exercises that take the place at the Combat Readiness Training Center, is regarded now as a world-class exercise. Uh, this exercise will focus on offensive counter-air with simulated surface-to-air attacks and the integration of multiple air platforms, said Colonel Bart Van Roo, who directs the exercise. Uh, training in this manner, he says, is essential for readiness and enhancing partnerships. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic necessitated some changes to the annual exercise's structure, but the training will be invaluable, Van Roo said. Though we still have more than 50 aircraft and approximately 1,000 personnel participating, far fewer will be staging out of Volkfield in order to mitigate public health risks, he said. Pilots and air crews uh, participating in Northern Lightning can expect to operate 
in a contested environment with adversary aircraft, electronic jamming and simulated surface-to-air threats to build readiness for threats and missions the nation faces. The general public can expect to see an increase in activity in and around the Camp Douglas area and the skies over central Wisconsin during the 11-day period. The drills might include supersonic travel uh, within FAA and military guidelines, so people in a 55 by 200-mile space around the field may hear sonic booms, well, that'd be fun, uh, between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. during weekdays. He says that uh, Van Roo said that we appreciate everyone's patience as it is necessary part of pre- uh, preparation for actual combat, he said. Residents of the following counties can uh, uh, ant- anticipate increased military flight operations in the airspace. So if you live uh, Adams, uh, Brown, oh, so Monday, you know where all these places are, Cal- Calumet, uh, Clark, Columbia, Dane, Dodge, Fond du Lac, uh, Green Lake, Jackson, Marathon, Marquette, Monroe, I'm probably pronouncing these completely wrong, Outgamey, Outgamey, Outagami, Portage, Souk, Shibugan, Sheboygan, 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 Trampoleo, Walpaca, Winnebago, Winnebago, I know that one, and Wood, Blimey. Say Good job, after, Carlos. Say that after a rum and coke. You have officially named all of the Native American tribes in the Great Lakes. Woo! So, or if you've ever been to Oshkosh and you've taken a ride on the B twenty nine or the B seventeen, these are all of the counties that you fly over. He's probably offended many people by the terrible pronunciation of some of those as well. I am sorry. <laughs> I, I could not have done a better job, I have to say. <laughs> but I'll I tell you what, I, I, uh, Jonathan Warner, is listening, because I know he listens to the show, that I, I bet he wishes he could fly out and, um, and watch this. Yeah, this is a pretty remote part of the country, especially when you're talking about the you know north of Oshkosh up to the Canadian border. It's... Uh, it's really important for these exercises to continue. And in the shadow of the COVID virus, it's uh, really important that, that they mitigate the risk, right? Because they're, they're training these, these troops to go into combat. The last thing that they need is for them to get sick. So I'm sure they're doing their best to, to do that and mitigate that risk. But I'm glad to see that there's a bit of a, an awakening um, and, and we're getting back to some sort of combat readiness training. Now, Nev, you've got the next story, and uh, when I first saw this story this afternoon, all I could think about was ho, 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 green giant. <laughs> yes, the jolly green giant. But uh, we've seen, you know, uh, air-to-air refueling is obviously commonplace, but um, this scares the the heck out of me, I have to say, just looking at some of the pictures with this one. But it's a really interesting story, uh, and it says uh, that uh, an HH... Uh, 60W Jolly Green 2 connects with an HC-130J tanker for its first aerial refueling over southern Alabama on August the 5th. The Air Force's newest combat search and rescue helicopter is currently undergoing developmental and operational testing. And uh, approximately uh, 3,000 feet above Elgin Air Force Base, the HH-60W Jolly Green 2 connected with an HC-130 tanker for the inaugural aerial aerial refueling uh, by the Air Force's newest 
combat search and rescue helicopter. The connection marks the start of two weeks of developmental testing of the aircraft's aerial refueling abilities by the 413th Flight Test Squadron testers and their mission partners. Uh, the capability is essential for the CSAR mission since it greatly extends the operating range of the aircraft and thus allows the unit to extend their rescue capabilities over a large battle space, says Joe Whitaker, 413th uh, FLTS Combat Res- uh, Rescue Helicopter Flight Chief. Throughout the tests, the aircrew and engineers will evaluate the helicopter's ability to connect with the fuel drogue and its handling qualities during the fueling. Uh, They also monitor the functionality of the systems and gauges to ensure that the aircraft receives the fuel appropriately with the proper pressures. Our job is to evaluate how difficult aerial refueling will be for operational pilots and to identify any unforeseen hazards due to the unique configuration of the HH-60W, which may not have been present in the legacy HH-60G, Whitaker said. Early missions will be done during daylight hours. Uh, Testing will conclude with a nighttime evaluation using night vision goggles. Uh, This is a critical test milestone for the program as it reinforces the superior capabilities of the HH-60W and its ability to support the Air Force's CSAR mission, says Greg Hahn, Sikorsky Combat Rescue Helicopter Program Director. Uh, Major Andrew Farmer, the uh, uh, 413th FLTS pilot, was the Air Force pilot for the refueling mission. He evaluated the handling qualities and made the first contacts. He and his air crew spent extra time preparing for the mission that included talking through the test sequence and rehearsing the phraseology used during the refueling. It was that extra time spent that made for a smooth mission without issues, according to Farmer. It's rare for a test pilot to have this opportunity to to test a new aircraft, replacing the one he or she flew operationally, and to be the first one to do something like this, Farmer said. It was an honour to be the pilot, to fly this mission and work with a truly professional test team. The aerial, aerial refueling mission marks yet another 2020 uh, milestone for the HH-60W programme. So far, the Jolly Green 2 has undergone radar, weather and defence system testing, to name a few. The execution of this critical test is yet another demonstration of our successful partnership with the Air Force and brings us one step closer to delivering this much-needed helicopter to our airmen, Hames said. But, uh, yeah, you might have seen some of the pictures during me reading that and... Uh, Gosh, that looks pretty hairy uh, during daylight hours, let alone doing that with night vision goggles um, after dark. Extraordinary. Yeah, I don't think anybody ever described aerial refueling as being easy, no. uh, especially from a helicopter because you've got two very different aircraft uh, in very close proximity to each other. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny as you were reading this, Nev, I was thinking back, man, I've been on the podcast or with you guys long enough that I remember reading when the Air Force first announced the new HH-60W, uh, the Jolly Green 2. Um, so this is a great milestone uh, for the for the next combat search and rescue helicopter for the Air Force. Yeah, what do you think about sort of the wake turbulence from the tanker? I mean... Uh, yeah, it's mitigated by power settings and flaps and the, the drogue are long enough or their hose is long enough that a lot of that downwash is going underneath the helicopter so um, as long as you sort of plug in scoop it up and keep above the you know all that that uh, that 
prop wash you should be and the wake turbulence you should be okay now that where it all goes wrong is when you get out, out of your little protected envelope there and um, you can't go left and you can't go right you know usually you have a wingman on one side or in a pre-contact position and you have the aircraft itself on the other the other wing and matt's playing out this long you know much viewed video of what can go wrong when you start chasing that drogue yes chop off your own the, the the parameters are, are extremely narrow aren't they for, for operation of this yeah they certainly are but uh, i'll tell you what the the pilots train they train a lot uh to do this and um they ultimately the goal is to be able to do it under in combat under uh night vision goggles with no lights you know in a situation where um it's sort of a a get gas or the mission fails type thing. So that the imperative is there to succeed and to, to do it well. So we, we train quite a bit to it. Yeah. Amazing. Now, Armando, the next story in the military is, um, is one that uh, we picked up on, I think uh, a week ago, but so we thought we'd put it in here just for you, because I find this really interesting, especially when it comes to 3d printing. Yeah. The air force. Oh goodness. Carlos, you may have to read it because uh, I'm behind a firewall, apparently, a paid firewall. Yeah, it is about 3D printing air engine engine uh, components. Carlos, are you able to get to it? Yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to that right now. Here we go. And just uh, here we go. And yes, this one is on Flight Global. And the uh, it's all about uh, the U.S. Air Force producing its first 3D printed metal parts for aircraft engines. So Tinker Air Force Base maintenance personnel in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, have produced and tested the first 3D printed metal parts on a U.S. Air Force aircraft engine. The service reverse engineered and reproduced anti, or they were they produced an anti-ice gasket for the Pratt & Whitney TF33-P103 turbofan engine, which powers the Boeing uh, B-52 bomber and the E-3 Sentry and also the Northrop Grumman E-8C. Uh, the Pentagon is pushing the military services to experiment with using 3D printed technologies to save time and money manufacturing replacement parts for equipment components which are typically only needed in small lots. In August 2019, uh, Travis Air Force Base produced the uh, first certified 3D printed aircraft parts uh, replacement latrine covers for the Lockheed C-5M Super Galaxy. In, in particular, uh, finding replacement parts for aging aircraft can be difficult and expensive as the original part designs or manufacturers may no longer exist. Uh, contractors can sometimes charge more than the original cost of the part uh, due to re-engineering work required. The small number of replacement components to be ordered mean engineering costs cannot be spread across large production runs, adding to uh, additional costs per part. The anti-ice gasket project was a collaboration between the 76th Propulsion Maintenance Group, uh, the Reverse Engineering and Critical Tooling Lab, and the Air Force Life Cycle Management Center Propulsion Sustainment Di uh, Division, says Tinker Air Force Base. Uh, this accomplishment, they said, is a truly historic first. Uh, says Johnny Tazo, uh, Air Force Life Cycle Management Center Propulsion Structural Competency Lead. Uh, he says this is a digitally designed and digitally, uh, digitally, 
say that after rum and coke, digitally engineered component that represents a substantial milestone in Air Force sustainment, although its basic component, the technology our Air Force lifecycle team has developed, will help resolve supply chain issues and help bring further cap- uh, capacities to support the war fighter. The service was running short of anti-ice gaskets for its T-33 and decided to reproduce the part in-house to save time. This type of engineering makes it easy to source materials and greatly reduces lead times and ultimately helps reduce logistical and supply issues, says Richard Branks, 76 Propulsion Maintenance Group, Delegated Engineering Authority Engineer. Can you imagine a name plaque on his office door? Jeez. Uh, using or his th- business card. Yeah, using 3D <laughs> printing to create parts in-house, saved uh, Tinker Air Force Base administrative leave time, described as the amount of time between granting a contract and component being man- man- manufactured. Uh, the service says the time period was reduced from between 120 to 136 days to 14 to 21 days. That's a bit of a saving. The reverse engineering and critical tooling lab has so far digitally engineered and printed 30 anti-ice gaskets, and the anti-ice gasket successfully completed an engine acceptance test run, says Tinker Air Force Space. While the uh, anti-ice gasket components are relatively simple, the U.S. Air Force plans to try and produce progressively more complex parts in the future. Now, come on, Armando, you have obviously you're a, you've flown military aircraft in your in your career. How would you, how do you feel about having uh, 3D printed engine parts um, powering your uh, aircraft? You know, this answer may surprise you, but I had full faith and trust in in our airmen. And especially nowadays, uh, young airmen, uh, both enlisted and officers, are so uh, technologically savvy. And this is something, you know, 3D printing is something that's been around for a while and it's now commonplace. And I think that the materials, additive materials and additive manufacturing um, with advanced materials is going to get there to the point where the Air Force can go back to producing things in-house. And if these young airmen and engineers are... Uh, confident that these parts will work, then no one more than they uh, understand the importance of a part that they are manufacturing, uh, the importance for it to work. So um, I would actually love to see the acquisitions process be, uh, uh, you know, expedited by by in-house 3D printing of, of small and maybe even larger components so yeah i can't wait to see a 3d printed b22 (laughs) sure jonathan warner probably has one so (laughs) this is only big enough for ants to fly yeah so that is where we bring the military segment to a close this week but um in the last few weeks uh, we ran a competition with the aim of getting to know you our listeners and our audience a little bit better uh, we thanks uh, or thanks Andrew Keegan from the Plain Reclaimers for giving us the amazing prize of £150 to spend in the Reclaimers shop. So if you haven't already seen what they do, check out episode 324, where we had him as a guest on the show. And a well done to Andrew van der Sag, who won, who won the uh, draw, and you can hear his entry on last week's show, episode 330. Uh, we asked you as listeners to send in little pieces from uh, uh, the round the sort of theme of aviation in your life and for the next few weeks we'll be playing out 
uh, some of the feedback that we got. So uh, we're going to play out one of those feedbacks that we got sent to us right now. And this one is from Tanya Wyman in the US. Hello, Plain Talking UK crew. This is Tanya in New York City. Just wanted to put an entry in for the Plain Reclaimers contest. How exciting. That would be really, really cool to be able to select something from their uh, their shop. Uh, so here's just a few things about myself and aviation. Uh, going back to the early days, I would have to say uh, the first time I was really excited about it was when I was around 9 or 10. Uh, my father treated us to uh, a short flight in a Piper Cub. It was probably about 10, 15 minutes. But it was just so cool to be up in this aircraft. And uh, when I came home, I came like running into the, the house and said, Mom, Mom, I just had my first fright <laughs> instead of flight, which I guess was appropriate. But that was like a really fond memory from my childhood. And uh, to answer your quintessential question of which aircraft would you want to either fly, which I'm not a pilot, so that wouldn't be me, or be a passenger on, and unquestionably, absolutely Concorde is what I would really, I mean, unfortunately, she's not flying anymore, but, you know, that that's my choice, absolutely. My uh, cover photo for both my Twitter and Facebook is myself on the Concorde that's uh, parked at the Intrepid Museum here in New York. And it was kind of funny to hear Captain Nick describe it um, in the John Hutchinson interview as little as little more than an awning for the cafe. And I can understand why he had that impression, but they've really, really improved their program around the Concord there. Uh, we actually, uh, you have to pay extra and sign up for a tour, but that's fine. They just don't want, you know, high traffic because, you know, they don't want to destroy the plane inside. But we actually were on a tour. It was about an hour long, so had plenty of time. And it, it was only one another, other couple with us, so we had the plane pretty much to ourselves. It was really great. The guide was excellent, very knowledgeable, answered all of our questions. We got to go in the cockpit, and it was just, it was really, really nice. So, um, you know, once we can travel again, uh, if anyone is in the area, yeah, just uh, keep that in mind. It's it's definitely worth uh, a visit, I think. And the rest of the Intrepid is amazing, too. It's just an amazing place. So very, very highly recommended. And actually, uh, one time when I was flying back to New York from Florida, uh, the Concorde took off ahead of us. And oh my gosh, it was so loud. <laughs> it was just incredibly loud. It was really wild, though, to be able to experience that. And I think that might have been the same flight where we also saw the space shuttle take off just completely like was, this was not planned i was flying out just happened to be flying back from a cruise and this, the pilot comes on the pa and says well we've got the space shuttle t taking off off of our you know left side so it was really wild to see that um the sad part about that is that was the columbia the on the flight where they did not return safely so that was sad but it was again just really exciting to see that and also just like one note about the 747 the first and now apparently last time I ever flew on a 747 was to come to PTUK 300 this January. I am so thrilled that I did that and uh, it flew on a 747 both ways on British Airways and it was really wonderful the crew were wonderful 
and it was just really special to it's it's, it's even more special now uh, with everything that's happened and now that uh, they're not really in passenger service or won't be shortly. Uh, so that was really, really neat. And also to see the, the 747 and the Landor livery uh, take off or land a couple times while while I was over there. So it was just so wonderful to see all of you. I hope we can do it again soon. And uh, thank you very much, Plain Reclaimers, for your generosity. And best of luck to everybody who entered. Cheers. Oh, thank you, Tanya, for sending that in. Very, very kind of you. And there's uh, loads more to come uh, in future episodes, so make sure you listen. But uh, big thanks to you for sending that in. It's great to hear everyone's uh, thoughts on aviation in their life, isn't it, Nev? Yeah, brilliant. Really interesting. And uh, great to hear uh, Tanya's tour of the uh, Concorde there. And uh, I've certainly been on the one that uh, managed to earn a very similar sort of tour as well. Absolutely fascinating uh, to listen to the guys talk about it. So, um, Amanda, you've got some really great places to go to in the u.s for aviation well i mean for anybody listening you can just come to the u.s you can do some social distancing and um, maybe you know what maybe we'll put that out to our listeners send in some of your favorite uh aviation locations if you were to have a friend come from overseas to the u.s what what list and then and then we'll uh we'll publish that I know I have about 30 spots that are off the beaten track. That would be fantastic. Excellent. There we go. So we look forward to, uh, to hearing that uh, from everyone who watches and listens to the show. So Armando, we're uh, going to uh, start to wrap things up. So you want to do social media links. Where can people find us uh, on the web? Well, well, they can find us on all the usual social medias. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Plain Talking UK. If you're looking at Apple Podcasts, I found out just recently you have to put the space in there. So it's Plain Space Talking UK, and it'll come right up. You can always send us messages, pictures, multimedia recordings to our WhatsApp, which is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. Emails are podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Or you can email us individually with our first names at plaintalkinguk.com, which also happens to be our website. Of course, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're already subscribed. If you're listening to it, go over to YouTube and subscribe. Uh, You'll get notifications when we go live. And you can help shape the conversation of the show by participating in our live chat room, which is most often just fact-checking us. Um, Let's see. uh, Use Amazon. But before you do, go over to our website and click the Amazon link, and that gives us a small portion, a small little donation. Uh, You could donate via Patreon. And, uh, yeah, the last thing is I think we got to kind of wrap the show up because those APG guys are starting up. So if you want seven hours of aviation podcasting, we'll cut our after show short, and we'll all hop over and have a beer at APG. Bring on it. Yeah, don't forget APG <laughs> yeah. are starting Mine. their show. Oh, I was uh, gonna say, you know, I'll just save it for the intro. I yeah, mean, they're starting yeah, their show, episode four thirty-eight of APG. That's a lot of that's a lot of distinguished mustache that I see there on the screen. So, <laughs> that is that is you know what uh, Jeff's got a lovely quiff going on there. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously they're talking about food, so that's the most important part of the show. 
So it's been uh, great to have everyone on the back on the show this week. Thanks to uh, to all the hosts for being on the show this week. Obviously, a massive thanks as well to our producer John. Big round of applause to you, John, for all the pre production show work for today's or tonight's episode a big thanks as well to everyone who's joined us in the youtube chat room this evening to uh, watching the show live thanks for taking time out of your friday and listening to the show and don't forget if you do download the show and listen to us as an audio podcast if you are on itunes just give us a little review because we love to hear what you think of the show and uh, if you want to give us a little five star review that would be fantastic but that, unfortunately, is um, where we're going to wrap. start to wrap the show up. Guys, what's going on next week in your lives? Uh, Nev, what's going on in the world of Nev next week? A bit, a bit of London travelling, I think, next week. I've chosen not to go on the train yet. I'm not quite in the mood for that, uh, apart from it's a bit warm. So a bit of air-conditioned comfort, because there's still not a lot of traffic in London currently, so you still can drive in London with uh, not too bad. So uh, I should be doing some of that during next week. Matt, dare I ask what you're doing next week, or is that probably not a good question to ask someone who can't talk? Um, I'll give it a go. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just working, working basically. I'm doing um, uh, my uh, sort of uh, my temporary job at the moment while I'm on furlough with a coach company. So working for a little company called Naked Wines, and I shall be uh, doing that all next week. Good, good. So we'll look after yourself, Matt. Get rid of that uh, that horrible cough. And Armando, I'm guessing you'll be uh, flying the uh, mean flight levels over the U.S. next week. Yep, much like Matt, I will also be working the next couple of weeks, so I'll try to dial in as much as I can. But uh, I am on the on the roster to fly both of those days, so um, let's hope for some cancellations or not. Wait, I don't know. Ah, I'm conflicted. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So that's uh, where we bring episode 331 of the Plane Talking UK podcast to a close. Don't forget, take yourselves over to the Airline Pilot Guy now and watch them for the next seven hours for episode 438. From me, Carlos, here in my home PTUK studios. From Matt in the master PTUK studios. From Nev in the beautiful Buckinghamshire studios. And from Armando across in the US studios. Have a great weekend, everyone. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Goodbye. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>